Thank you, Becky, for reading that text. If you have a Bible or reading device, go ahead and get that text in front of you if you can. I'd like you to see it. This passage has been deeply impactful to me this week and challenging. I trust as we dive into this scripture, we will all be encouraged and challenged as well. God uses our problems for his miracles. God uses our problems for his miracles. Do you know who said that? Corey Tenboom. Somebody who knew firsthand about problems. If you know her story, she was a Dutch watchmaker who lived a pretty quiet life until the Nazis took control. She and her family took this opportunity to step bravely into a situation where they risked their lives to serve others. They built a secret room in their home, no larger than a very small closet, as a refuge for Jews being hunted by the Gestapo. She became a leader of a safe house network in her country. Corey was directly involved in saving the lives of an estimated 800 Jews. But when the family was betrayed by a Dutch informant, they were all arrested and hauled away. Her father soon died in prison. Corey and her sister Betsy were taken to the Ravensbrück concentration camp near Berlin. They lived in horrific conditions and endured unimaginable suffering. Her sister Betsy soon died there. And 12 days later, Corey was released thanks to what many think was a clerical error, or as Corey thought, a miracle. But such unthinkable suffering and persecution did not deter Corey Tenboom from serving Christ. In fact, in the years after the war, she established worldwide ministries. She wrote best-selling books like The Hiding Place, and her words and her story continued to inspire and impact millions of people for Christ. And even in the midst of her darkest days, she even found joy, which is mind-boggling to most of us, as we, few of us can even imagine the kind of circumstances that she was in the middle of. And yet she found joy. This was possible because she did not focus on her own circumstances, but on the work that God was doing all around her and in her and through her. She knew, she discovered, that God uses our problems for his miracles, for his work. We'll see a a very same perspective in the Apostle Paul this morning in our text. So we continue our series in Philippians. We just began last week. We We've called citizens of heaven. Did you catch that phrase in the song that we just sang together? That was unplanned. That's the way the Holy Spirit works. But we've called the series Citizens of Heaven. This phrase is taken from chapter 3 of this book where Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. And this phrase is going to be an anchor point for us each week as we as we go through this amazing letter And ask ourselves, how our citizenship in heaven affects our lives here and now? Christ empowers us to live in a very, very different way than the world is able to do and the way that the world is used to. Last week, we began by seeing that Christ, that in Christ, we wield our power by laying it down for others, for the gospel. We learned that Paul penned this letter from prison. And yet this book, as many of you know, is filled with references to joy. 
Much like Corey Ten Boom, we see Paul found a joy in Christ that suffering and circumstances couldn't take away. So let's dive into this text and glimpse a little bit of Paul's mind and his heart to see how he learned to live with this kind of freedom and to see how Christ wants to grow us in the same way. Would you bow with me as we turn to God's word? Well, our Father, we come to you in total dependence, grateful for your work among us. Father, we celebrate who you are. We celebrate the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ as we just sang together with joy, how the resurrection of Christ changes everything. So we give you thanks for the season of Easter. We give you thanks for your word, and I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to take a step a little further into spiritual maturity, as we would learn from the Apostle Paul. And so transform us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So look at Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So right after Paul's introduction and opening prayer that we saw last week, Paul dives right in. There's something I want you believers to know. There's something he wanted the Philippian church and us to know right off the bat. This church probably sent word to Paul, concerned about his imprisonment. Paul, are you okay? Paul, what's going to happen now that you're in prison? Paul had a special relationship with this church. They were understandably concerned that their beloved apostle had been imprisoned. Maybe some were even panicking. Oh no, what are we going to do? This is, this is horrible. This is a disaster. What could be worse for a traveling apostle and preacher and church planter than to be confined to a prison? I mean, ministry done. Has God's work through Paul been thwarted? Has the enemy won? So Paul wastes no time setting the record straight. From the human perspective, his imprisonment is a huge setback to say the least. But Paul draws our attention to the bigger picture to show us what's really going on. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, my imprisonment, my suffering, all of this, has really served to advance the gospel. This word advance means forward movement despite obstacles. This word was used in ancient writing of pioneers cutting their way through dense Brushwood. This word was used of soldiers advancing through obstacles in a forward march. And it was used of ships making headway against a headwind. So Paul's saying, friends, friends, don't worry about me. It's not about me. Even as an apostle, it's not about me. It's about the gospel and the gospel is advancing. It's amazing how little Paul says about what he's experiencing himself personally. Most of us would be tempted to go on and on. I know I would. But the living conditions, the food, the food is terrible. Not to mention the injustice of it all. He's there for no crime. But this text lets us in on some of Paul's secret. A lot of people want to know what's the secret to living the Christian life. The secret to spiritual maturity. It's not a secret. But it feels like a secret to us because... We tend to miss it so easily. But for Paul, the gospel was the main thing. The gospel was the main thing. He goes on and on about the gospel. 
In fact, Paul mentions the gospel in this book, Philippians, more per page than any other book of the Bible. Gospel, gospel, gospel. Everything in Paul's life fell below this priority. And that includes himself. That includes his comfort, his preferences, his opinions on how things should go, his plans. Can you relate to this text at all? I mean, maybe Paul sounds like kind of a head in the clouds, just super Christian that we can't even relate to. But this perspective can and should be true of every believer, and it will be true of us, and it is true of us when the gospel is our highest priority, our highest aspiration, our highest ambition. This text is a clear call to us personally and together as a church to make sure that the gospel is our priority. The message of the good news, burial, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that transforms lives, that makes us citizens of an eternal kingdom. For our church, this means living out our vision, the gospel taking deeper root in our hearts and reaching wider to share the love of Christ in our community and around the world. This is how God can continue to grow us in our unity, to rise above secondary issues and personal convictions about politics and disappointments. And of course, we all want to say this verbally, right, that this is our priority, but living it is often another story, isn't it? Of course we want the gospel to advance, but when my comfort, my preferences are threatened, we quickly find out where our priorities lie, don't we? But to get to this point where Paul was, to be able to say honestly, hey, if a personal setback comes into my life that advances the gospel, go for it. Let's do this. Sign me up. To say with Corey Ten Boom, God uses my problems for his miracles. To take myself off the pedestal, to put the gospel right there where it belongs, as our highest ambition. How might God transform us and use us in new ways? Look at how he used Paul. Look at verse 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. The imperial guard is the praetorian or palace guard, essentially the elite bodyguards of the emperor, sort of like the Roman secret service, except there were thousands of these imperial soldiers. And one of their duties, among many, was to be chained to prisoners, and they would rotate in four-hour shifts. So it didn't take long for the word to be spread throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest, Paul says, that his imprisonment was not because of some crime. His imprisonment was for Christ. They say God works in mysterious ways. If you were God and you wanted the gospel to advance to the very seat of power in the Roman Empire, how would you do it? Through conquest? Through might? Through some impressive miracle? Well, it turns out if you were God and you wanted to do this, you'd have your apostle to the Gentiles arrested. You'd have these elite soldiers with duties all over the empire be chained to this apostle in rotating shifts. Do you see the picture here? Try to imagine what it would have been like 
to be chained to the Apostle Paul for four hours at a time. What do you think they heard? The gospel. That shift ends. The next guard comes and takes his place. What do you think he heard? The gospel. Before long, the whole imperial guard knew about Paul. They knew about Paul's message of this resurrected Jewish Messiah named Jesus. Flip over real quick to the end of the book, the very end of the book. Chapter 4, verse 21. I want you to see these words. Chapter 4, verse 21. This is the way Paul ends this book of Philippians. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Did you catch that? Paul's imprisonment led to the gospel advancing to Caesar's own household, where evidently some turned to Christ. Can you see the look on Paul's face as he pens these words? All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. This is incredible. The gospel advancing to the very center of power, but not using the world's power. Don't miss that. Not using the world's power. That's why somebody of a different perspective in Paul's position would have totally missed this opportunity. He's not whining. He's not complaining. He's not focused on his own suffering. I mean, suffering unjustly. Many of us would be going on and on about our rights. Paul's not worried about himself. Remember, his ambition is the gospel. He doesn't want to be in jail. He's not thrilled about his living conditions. But he decided to show up and be used where God put him. And as we know in the book of Acts and in his other letters, Paul had grand plans about spreading the gospel of traveling and setting up churches. He had grand plans, and this was not on his to-do list. But he yielded his plans to God's plan. And the gospel not only spread to Caesar's own household, but as Paul says in verse 14, so many other believers were inspired by Paul. They were encouraged by Paul, by his example, to preach more boldly themselves. And so the gospel spread even further. This text shows us how God strategically places his people in places and in situations to advance the gospel. But here's the part we don't like. It's usually through, it's often through suffering. It's often in very difficult circumstances where God strategically places us to advance the gospel. In Paul's case, persecution. Paul wasn't surprised to be persecuted. Remember, Jesus promised us that persecution would come. What did John say, or what did Jesus say in John 15? We heard in the call to worship. If you were of this world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, therefore the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus promised it. And God actually uses it. We see in the book of Acts, the church at first, the very early church, the first Christians, they stayed in Jerusalem. They maybe got a little bit comfortable. And so God brought persecution to spread his people where? To Judea, to Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So we see in scripture and so often in church history that God empowers the church to be the church, not by giving them the world's power, but the opposite, by taking away the world's power from the church, giving them his power, the power of the gospel to advance. 
Remember, it's in our weakness that God is strongest through us. Where does the church thrive and grow the most? Usually it's not where the church has power, where the church has sway. It's where the church is persecuted. Where the world's power clashes with this countercultural power of the gospel. Where believers are willing and ready to lay down everything they have. Their comfort, their control, their influence, their reputation, even their lives for the sake of the gospel. Now don't get me wrong. I'm very grateful to live in a country where we can worship freely. I think we should give God thanks constantly for that. And I pray that continues. But we know, according to Jesus, this is not the norm, is it? This is not to be expected. And so there's a sense in which, as citizens of heaven, we can't confuse our American rights with our citizens of heaven rights. In other words, avoiding persecution, let alone having power, should not be our expectation, and it's certainly not our right. So if and when we experience actual persecution, the response of citizens of heaven is not to whine, it's not to demand our rights, it's to lay down our power for the sake of the gospel. In this current climate in our country and world, we need to be very honest with ourselves. We need to be very careful about where our priorities are. There are believers across the political spectrum, left and right, that seem to think we will bring Christ's kingdom through political power. Remember, the Jews in Jesus' day expected the same thing of their Messiah, and they missed him. So we need to be wise and discerning today not to misrepresent our Messiah. We need to be wise and discerning about what we're telling the watching world when we very, very loudly align ourselves with particular political parties, particular political agendas or opinions on the current issue of the week. We need to be careful. We need to be wise. We need to be discerning. When they look at us, do they see people that care most about the gospel? Or do they see something different? There are so many polarizing issues right now that have potential to distract, that have potential to divide us, and our varied opinions have their place. But the problem is how we wield them, isn't it? The problem is how we elevate them so easily to the top priority spot. This text speaks directly to this moment that we're in right now. How can we reach the world with the gospel and Christians when churches are divided over trivial and temporary issues, divided over issues about response to COVID. There's a very real temptation straight from the enemy to let our views on things bump the gospel out of the top spot. This is a temptation for all of us, regardless of our political perspective, regardless of our opinions. It's human nature. We all need to be on guard to resist this temptation, to stay unified around what matters most. Paul's perspective here in this text, this is the kind of passage that's so easy to just brush over, to just get to the meat of the letter. But let's just stop right here and soak in this perspective, to soak in these words, to let God's word impact our hearts and minds, to let it speak to where we are right now at this very moment. 
Most of us aren't experiencing persecution. I know I'm not. But maybe there are circumstances in your life that make you feel imprisoned. Maybe it's a certain situation right now at school, at your job, at home. Maybe it's your own body with a physical ailment, a circumstance you just want to escape. And it may be God's will to deliver you from that, to change that circumstance. But oftentimes, maybe most often, we need to ask first, how is Christ at work here? How is Christ at work in this circumstance? How might he want to use you where you are in that prison? If we made the gospel that prior, the priority in that situation, how would it change our perspective? Maybe that circumstance that you're struggling so deeply with, maybe God has strategically put you there to be a light for Christ. To advance the gospel in a way that maybe nobody else has access in that specific situation. And so pray this week and even start praying daily. God, show me where you want me to advance the gospel. God, open my eyes to the opportunities that are all around me. Help me focus less on myself so I can see the opportunities and be used. And if you think Paul's perspective so far is radical, I want you to look at verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. So Paul's perspective freed him not only from focusing not on his own suffering, but it freed him from even taking offense to these very personal attacks coming at him from other believers. And in that freedom, he experienced this unshakable joy. This passage, to me, is such a picture of a deep spiritual maturity. Challenge us to just prayerfully meditate on this text, to read it over and over again and pray through this passage this week. I mean, think about it. Attacks from pagan Rome might be expected, but fellow believers? Remember, some were emboldened by Paul's imprisonment to preach the gospel, to come alongside him in this mission, to work together to advance the gospel. And Paul says other people took the same opportunity to preach out of selfish motives. To attack Paul. Who are these people? It's easy to imagine these are the Judaizers. These are the false teachers spreading a false gospel. But tragically, I don't think that's the case here. How does Paul describe them? He says they're preaching Christ. Elsewhere, Paul has very, very strong words for those preaching a false gospel. He doesn't let that slide. But these seem to be genuine believers who have developed some sort of personal animosity against Paul, some sort of personal rivalry. Maybe they didn't like his influence as an apostle. They didn't like his preaching style, the brand of sandals that he chose to wear. Who knows? Whatever it was, look at the contrast that they are with Paul. To try to use the gospel to make his life more difficult. The immaturity. 
is unbelievable. Envy and rivalry are words we see elsewhere showing up on lists of the worst vices. So this shows us what even we as believers are capable of when we're not yielding to the Spirit. But what is Paul's response? Think of how you'd respond, how you'd respond in this situation. He could have reported them. They could have landed in a cell right next to him. Think of his authority as an apostle. One word, and he could have discredited these people. Ministry done. Or at least he could have called them some colorful names to vent a little bit. But what does he say? Look very carefully again at verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Remember, the gospel is his overriding passion and priority. So even when the gospel is preached by people who are doing so to personally attack him, he could actually rejoice. He could actually find joy and celebrate that the gospel was being preached. This is like Joseph in Genesis, forgiving his brothers, telling them that what God, what they meant for evil, God meant for good. This is revolutionary. This is a gospel perspective. They had selfish ambition. Paul was selfless with a gospel ambition. So Paul's secret to maturity was this selfless gospel ambition. Not his own comfort, not his own success, not his own reputation. And because the gospel is unshakable, because its advance is promised by God, and it's a sure thing, Paul's joy could also be unshakable. I don't know about you. Do, you. do you struggle to have joy? Does it go up and down based on your circumstances like it often does with me? We try in our own strength to manufacture the life that we think will give us joy. And oftentimes we can't because it goes up and down with our circumstances. But we're called to something much greater. As citizens of heaven... We're part of a kingdom that's not in danger. We know who sits on the throne. And so like Paul, we're not meant to wait till Christ comes back and sets up his kingdom in fullness to have this joy, to have this unshakable joy. I came across a principle, a quote this week from this passage that hit me between the eyes, so I'd like to share it with you all. Spiritual maturity can be measured by what it takes to steal your joy. Ouch. Let me read that again. Spiritual maturity can be measured by what it takes to steal your joy. What does it take to steal your joy? If I'm honest, I too often let minor annoyances steal my joy. Flat tire, the garage door breaks. To say nothing of major life setbacks and struggles, financially, sickness, relational conflict. But even then, I don't think we have an excuse What do you allow to steal your joy? How about virtual meetings? Do virtual meetings steal anybody's joy? We can be honest. Thank you for your honesty. I mean, to be fair, Paul, you were a spiritual giant, but you never had to sit through five hours of Zoom meetings. That may have made an exception if Paul was aware of this. Maybe it's our polarized culture that's stealing your joy. What about somebody personally attacking you? Maybe that you're in a relational conflict. 
somebody at school or somebody at work is gossiping about you or slandering you. And that's tough when it gets personal, isn't it? But Paul shows us the way here. If spiritual maturity can be measured by what it takes to steal your joy, I think we can reverse that to say spiritual immaturity can be measured by how easily we get angry and offended. Just sit with that for a moment. Like Paul, we can learn to let God worry about other people. Let God worry about other people's hearts and other people's motives. It's our job to keep our priorities straight. And Paul is in chains, but he lived with a freedom that many of us can only imagine. But we have the same provision of Christ that Paul had. We have the same indwelling spirit. So this freedom, this joy is ours if we want to live into it. If you're hearing this here or online and you don't know Christ, this text has given you a glimpse of the kind of freedom and joy that God wants for you beyond circumstances. None of this is achievable through effort, self-help, just changing your mind. It's a gift from God. And so for you, if you don't know Christ, this begins, your first step is to put your faith in Christ. And believer, this text is a call to us to choose to find our joy in what matters, not our circumstances. In prison, under personal attack, Paul chose to say, I will rejoice. Christ is preached in that we can rejoice. Christ is on the throne and in that we rejoice. God is at work in our lives. God is at work through us. And in that we can rejoice. Our future is secure because of the sure hope of resurrection in Christ. And in that we rejoice. God uses our problems for his miracles. Corey Ten Boom was on to something. And she sounds an awful lot like the Apostle Paul, doesn't she? And so many other believers in history who endured so much but stayed the course and even did so with joy because their selfless ambition was the gospel. Like them, we can take a step further individually and as a church into a deeper spiritual maturity, not in our own strength, but in the provision that Christ provides us. He gives us his love. He gives us his peace and his joy. So let's be a church that makes the gospel our ambition. That our mission and vision wouldn't just be words that we say, but something we would live out together. Let's be a people growing in dependence on God to put us strategically in spheres of influence where we are ready to be used by God to advance the gospel. Let's be a people of unshakable joy. Would you pray with me? Our Father, open our eyes to see beyond our circumstances, to the ways that you are at work in us and through us. Would you align our hearts with your heart? Help us in this critical moment in our culture and in our history to see beyond our differences, to come together around the gospel that unites us. Would you use us, use this church to advance the gospel in our community and around the world and give us the joy of Christ no matter what challenges we may face along the way? 
And so grow us together in the power of the Spirit and for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let us stand.